creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to do a little housekeeping. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do not forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Also, be sure to follow us on social media if you don't already by searching for Left POC. Finally, be sure to check out our Patreon page where everything is always free to the public and where we accept donations to help keep the podcast running. With your support, we are able to pay for web storage and basic podcast needs, but also to keep our unique system going in which we not only provide a small payment as a token of thanks to our guests, but where we also make a donation on their behalf to the organization of their choice in order to provide support to the community. We also support other leftist podcasts as a means of expressing our gratitude for the hard work that they're putting into the process of making ideology that recognizes humanity one that is all the more pervasive. And speaking of ideology that recognizes humanity, let's get on with the show. Today's episode is a reading revolution segment, our series where we read and discuss work written by and or that inspired leftists of color. For this episode, we discuss the Combahee River Collective Statement from 1977. The Combahee River Collective was a group of black lesbian socialists who met in Boston over the course of several years to discuss social issues and means of organizing their communities. The collective was named after a particular mission led by Harriet Tubman at the Combahee River that resulted in the freedom of over 750 slaves. While a fairly large group, which shifted in size during its years of inoperation, some of its most notable members include Barbara Smith, Demita Frazier, and Audre Lorde. These women activists and thinkers initially came together in 1974 out of frustration with the Black movement and the women's movement for their discrimination toward and failures to address the needs of women like themselves. Building upon the work of radical Black women who had come before them, including abolitionists and socialists alike, this collective of women is most famously known for coining the term identity politics, which has unfortunately been distorted beyond recognition by people left, right, and center in the present. Though the group disbanded in 1980, the women who were part of it remained politically active and continue their fight for human rights. This episode is to discuss their manifesto, reclaim the original intentions behind it, and consider how their seminal work can be applied into a better future. As always, please be sure to check out the show notes for readings and resources about the Comedy River Collective, including the statement we discussed in the episode. Hey, Richard. How is it? It's, how's it going? I'm afraid to ask this question. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's dangerous. Uh, no, it's, uh, things have been uh, mostly well for me, so uh, as as well as they can be given the conditions, anyway. So, yeah, um, I think it, it'll clear. No, <laughs> that's my response. Just like my brain melts. Um, yeah, I'm 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 doing okay, I guess. Uh, but I think. I don't know. I think this reading this time around was pretty fitting considering everything that's going on. I think all of our readings have been fitting. So I shouldn't say like this is some sort of, you know, special, special um, thing that's different from the others. But it's interesting kind of watching all of the the movement work going on and then the incredibly draconian and like 
overreaching disproportionate response to that work by the police and by the state. And then to be reading something like this, the Combahee River Collective Statement, where these women are talking about everyday oppression and what they're trying to do and how they're trying to come together um, to at least discuss and name the oppressions they're facing and, and ways to address it. It's, it's, an, you know, it's kind of nice to think about the earlier stages of things like intersectionality, things like um, you know, the movement work that's done by the movement for Black Lives or Black Lives Matter and all of the offshoots that have come out since. And also just to kind of see in particular the ongoing work that Black queer women are doing in these sorts of spaces. I think a lot about, you know, a lot of the um, sort of uh, mutual aid and mutual aid collectives that have been popping up as of late. And a lot of them are led by Black women and in particular Black queer women in many cases. And so it's kind of fascinating to read, you know, the sort of history behind the kind of work we're seeing now by the same types of women um, from the 70s. So I don't know, I just, I think it's kind of like a, a reverb of sorts historically. Absolutely, yeah. And it, I think what is consistently, uh, I guess, a bit surprising or impressive is just how fit, how fitting and how timely these pieces that we read are considering the the when they were written often 40 60 years ago sometimes so like or even longer and to see the the applicability and the i guess resonance of today's situation in these types of uh readings is always just uh, leaves an impression and so i think this was uh, another one that is both timely for the kind of general conversation that's going on in the what's happening in the world but also uh, for me personally it uh, speaks to a lot of the kind of concerns questions and curiosities i had about how we got to where we're at now and so it, i think that it's a lot of interesting there's a lot of interesting stuff packed in a very relatively short piece here yeah like if you print it because uh, i put it into a google doc it's about 11 pages um, it's not that long at all. And so, and, and we, you and I talked about this a bit off air, but it's something that's come up with some of our other readings as well. But like the way that when you read it, it seems like a given in some ways, right? Go ahead and talk mm. about that. Cause you, you mentioned this and it's something that like I felt as well. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things where it seems like, uh, very enlightened and wise in its content, but at the same time, it's kind of, you look at it and you're like, well, duh, right? This is, this is what has been obvious and has been in no, uh, I guess, minced words, been kind of told to us several times. And it seems as though it's just so hard for us to listen sometimes. And so like, just knowing, like seeing it, that it's one of these things that has been being said for decades as a lot of the readings that we've had has been a realization for me is that the, the feelings and the observations that I've been having about society are actually feelings and observations that people in similar situations have been having for decades. And it's not a matter of these, uh, those things not being expressed. It's a matter of those expressions not being heard. And so to, this is just kind of uh, serves to reinforce that, perception that I've had. And it's fascinating too, because like, obviously the, the statement itself gets at that, right? Like they talk about, you know, why they don't feel like they're being heard. And this is from the seventies. So 
imagine, you know, these four women now looking at the situation and we're saying the same things, you know, like we're still not Ugh. being heard. We're still having issues. It must be kind of frustrating for them to say the least, because most of them are still alive. I think maybe a few of them may, may have passed, um, but most of them are still alive and incredibly politically active. Um, you know, Barbara Smith is still, she was part of the Sanders campaign pretty prominently. And it's weird because she, she was sort of, <laughs> I, I'm frustrated by how they ended up doing the interview and the discussion with her because it came on the heels of the Joe Rogan endorsement and how they sort of made a big deal out of that. And I was like, you know, for, to get the audience that they really want, the, the, the sort of voters that they really want, they should be emphasizing the connections that they've made with women like this. Um, Black women in their 50s and 60s who, you know, were part of social movements of the past and involved in social movements now still. And they were kind of sleeping on that that connection and, and sort of, it, it felt almost like an afterthought um, or, or a sort of damage control moment to me, which is unfortunate because I think if they had foregrounded these connections with women like this, I think they would have attracted, perhaps, maybe not certainly, but perhaps attracted um, more, more of an audience like, like those women, right? Like older black women that they really needed um, to vote for them to kind of get them to secure the nomination, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, but I do, <laughs> but I do think that, that what's interesting about this, like building on what you were saying, is that on the one hand, it's frustrating that you're like, oh my god, they've been saying this forever, and we're still doing, we still have the same problems or very similar problems, right? Um, and and the it's concerning and frustrating that that feeling of they're having not been heard, right? And our concerns not having been heard, period. But then on the second second side of this, right, the other hand, I think it's positive in that what they say has become common knowledge, right? And it's become a popular, it's become like sort of a part of our popular discourse about these issues, about issues of race, gender, class, um, you know, sexual identity and things like that it's part of the common vernacular these days, especially movement vernacular. And so in some ways it's, it's just disheartening that you don't, you, we don't feel like they were heard or they didn't feel like they were being heard and we still feel like we're not being heard. But on the other hand, it's like this information sort of trickled down or it spread out. I don't want to say trickled down because that implies that these women were like all upper class and like whatever, and they definitely <laughs> were not, but it spread out it's spread beyond these moments, these historical moments in which they're writing something like this and having these meetings. Because nowadays, the language that they use and the concerns that they have are commonplace. And it's not something that is isolated and like, you know, just relegated to the history books, but it's something that's a part of our everyday speech and everyday concerns and the articulation of those concerns. So like, you know, and I, I, this happens a lot, right? Like a historian or anthropologist may write a book and then doesn't sell that well and then eventually people start picking it up and using it in a classroom and then it's sort of the argument becomes more popularized because people are talking about it and they may not be citing that person right but their idea is spread around I think of people like Cedric Robinson who wrote Black Marxism so many ideas in that book are commonplace and people talk about but they don't necessarily know that they came from that book right um and many, many other texts that we've read. Um, so I think in some ways it's, it's positive that regardless of their not being heard in real time, I think they were heard eventually by virtue of like 
other women and, and educators and activists who were spreading this information and encouraging others to at least talk about the issues that they faced. Um, I know for, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. You're fine. I was just, I was just going to say, I know for me personally, another aspect that kind of resonates is that it's sometimes it's easy to, when I look at some of these prominent figures throughout uh, the civil rights movement and throughout the kind of radical left history to put them on a pedestal and imagine them as always existing as these like fully formed radical communists or whatever. And just in the statement that they are acknowledging that they're developing and identifying and kind of refining what their politics are and finding them. Uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, like I can relate to the idea that it makes me feel like, Oh, I don't have to be, uh, a, you know, this already knowing everything. It's okay to be exploring and to un be on this process of learning and understanding. And so like, and even people that rise to be rather prolific figures and have wide impacts, uh, have those moments. And so it's something I could relate to. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's like, okay, we're not, we're not starting from square one, you know, like we have something to build on, but we're also like engaging in a process that many other people have done before us. Um, mm -hmm. And that we're not alone in this like figuring out stage, right? Like trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I just want to also put my motivations out there of, as to why I decided to, to, for us to read this. So um, you and I both had just done an interview with Delete Your Account which I will link in the comments or in the show notes, excuse me, everyone should check it out. It was great to speak to Kumars. He's a wonderful interviewer too, like really good at this. Um, and so I feel like that was a really fruitful discussion, but we talked a bit about, um, you know, some of our concerns uh, on the left, at least the, the nominal left, the online left, that culture of sorts and what's been emerging as sort of um, um, a rhetoric and a form of, of talking about the issues that sort of rejects and excludes matters of identity um, on the one hand and or um, is framing everything through like a right wing lens. So it's as if they're bought some, some people on the online left are borrowing issues and concerns from the right and like trying to attract people from the right to come to the left. So they're using the language of the right um, but the problem is that they're then absorbing the ideology of the right too and making the right wing concerns left wing concerns when they have no place on the left. So like this recent obsession with cancel culture that's come about, um, so-called cancel culture, because I don't think cancel culture and the way people think it exists, exists. Um, and they've been sort of making that the primary concern. And on, on a similar note, this concern about, you know, do identity politics bring down the left? And I see a, an obsession with this idea. And ha it has been kind of an obsession for a while, but I think it really like came to the surface after uh, the 2016 election. And for me, it's always been just a, a rehashing of the, the political correctness debates from the, from the 80s and 90s. Um, and then I think a cheap rehashing in fact, but it's as if people think that it's new, like people think cancel culture whatever they define it as this like new thing but it's always been a preoccupation of the right and so i've been trying to figure out like why are people on the left kind of taking on this issue when it's not a real 
thing. And then on top of that, like defending people who have immense degrees of power in the process. Um, and so I wanted to read something that dealt with one of the concerns that keeps coming up, which, ha and, and I see identity politics, this, this debate over whether identity politics has a place on the left and whether cancel culture is real. I see these two debates as connected because usually the argument is like, the people who are talking about identity politics or who are emphasizing their identity are then the ones who subsequently go on to cancel, quote unquote, cancel other people for not being respectful of or, you know, like addressing those aspects of their identity. So like I've seen the example given, you know, that, oh, if someone gets canceled because they don't use the proper pronouns for someone or the proper racial designation and then they get upset about it and then they quote unquote cancel the person who's not using the proper terminology whatever that means in terms of cancellation i don't know but um my point here is that i think these two issues are linked and i think it's important for us to go back and kind of really talk about the original meaning of the term identity politics because literally like Barbara Smith had to record a video the other day. It was like during an interview, I believe, where she talked about like what identity politics actually means because so many people have gotten away from the original meaning that it's like maddening. Um, and I think that's an intentional, it's been an intentional distortion of what these women meant. And so that's why I felt like it was really important to go back and actually look at their words because a lot of what comes up in this very short reading is actually super relevant to movement work on the left today. Um, but sometimes get sidelined because of people's pre-existing biases, for example, against women like these. So against black women, against black people, period. Um, against people of color, period. Against women, period, right? So there's some issues in here that definitely, um, the way they frame it are important for us to think about now, but in particular for us to hold on to some of the definitions they put out um, and how they root them in socialism, which is another really important aspect of this kind of work. Uh, that these women did that I think gets lost. Um, so we should we should definitely talk about that and like, um, you know, some of the meanings that they assign, not only to terminology, but like aspects of the movements themselves. Because I think, again, that we sometimes get bogged down with these right-wing debates that really don't reflect what's what should be going on on the left and where our our focus should lie, right? Like our focus should be on making sure that everyone's okay and like making sure that the system that's that's making things not okay is like dismantled ASAP, you know, or as much as we can possibly do within our lifetimes. Um, questioned, dismantled, and reshaped into something that's, that we want to see as improving our, our conditions and improving our world. And I think sometimes people get lost in these like pop culture kind of um, debates but as I said, that are framed by the right. And that's really frustrating. And so that's why I chose it. And I also, that's why I was just going back. I think that everyone, if they have a chance, um, should listen to our discussion that you and I had on Delete Your Account because we talk about some of these issues in greater depth that we may not address here today. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think one of the particulars that I kind of expressed there, and I think I would, uh, pulled away from this as well is that there is a sincere concern that essentially uh, white leftists can get enough of what they want without the liberation of more marginalized communities. And then these cancel cultures is kind of a, a response or the, what, as it exists or whatever is a uh, essentially oftentimes those marginalized communities saying, Hey, 
that that's that's happening right now. This is you're mar- like you're leaving us out. You're not recognizing how this is going. This liberation struggle is leaving us out, and it's a response to not liking that criticism. Really, is kind of where I've seen a lot of the cancel culture complaints come out of, and that's and whether there's some overzealous people that uh, take on particular issues for the sake of. Uh, a superficial kind of thing. I don't think that that exists in to any significant degree to which it warrants any of the type of the attention that it gets, as you mentioned, as far as, as a place on the left of, in the main part of the conversation discourse. That's right. And I also, you know, as I said in that interview as well, that like what people, when people talk about the top down kind of cancel culture. So what you're, what you were describing, Richard, is what I call like the bottom up quote unquote cancel culture, right? At least if, if they're using their framing to call the what I would consider legitimate grievances against people with power. If we're, if we're calling that cancel culture, then <laughs> um, that's the bottom up version. And then they also sometimes talk about the top down version, but I would argue, so like, let's say someone getting fired because they support Palestinian rights or Black Lives Matter. To me, that's not cancel culture. And the reason I have a problem with that framing is because like for socialist reasons, because it takes away our real discussion of power and capitalism, right? And the way power operates under capitalism. So if you work for a company that's telling you, you can't wear a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter, they're infringing upon your first amendment rights. Um, it's not, a, they're not canceling you, right? They're infringing, they're infringing upon your rights and they're limiting your ability to express yourself within a capitalist system because they don't want to quote unquote alienate customers right and in reality they're not going to alienate customers they're they're the ones who are offended you know the ceos are the ones who are offended if your um politics question or reason to question their actions as ceos or as people with power you know what i mean like it's if we talk about uh if we try to frame what capitalism traditionally does and what power traditionally does as canceling as something as frivolous as that, then that kind of cheapens the discussion about, about hierarchies and, and capitalism. As I said, you know, I think it takes away from our socialist critique of systems instead of, you know what I mean? Cause it kind of, it just cheapens it. It turns it into this like, like internet spat as opposed to an actual expression of, um, of power within, within the system we have. I think that's an excellent point, and particularly the emphasis on the the power dynamic at play and where who's holding the power and within this in the systemic power at play is all critical elements when uh, like looking at any situation where either an individual or a group of individuals are uh, expressing their opinion and then what the ramifications and consequences are for the expression of that opinion and then how the the dynamics at play is where well as how the political angle will uh, affect that. Whereas if your politics are to the left, it's in likelihood that you're going to be in conflict with whatever capitalist ideals, the management and bosses and owners and are kind of supporting or believing. And so you're going to run into a lot more conflict than if you're uh, expressing political views that are aligned with capitalism. And I, I agree with all of that. And I think the other part that comes out in this um, discussion is the fact that like what we end up overlooking if we frame everything as a matter of quote unquote canceling. Um, because I think we, you know, we have recently there was um, 
I think, a, a, I don't know if they were specifically Black Lives Matter or if they were affiliated with an offshoot thereof, but they had like disrupted a brunch. And, you know, apparently some left-wing media, including TYT, I believe, had sort of complained about that, um, about this group interrupting people while they were dining or whatever, you know, and kind of accusing them of, of being basically canceling a segment of the society and what when what they were doing in actuality was trying to raise awareness in an everyday space so that people weren't comfortable you know what i mean like this is what protest is about right like sort of raising the stakes and making people understand that their comfort means our suffering sometimes you know often it's it's a one-to-one relationship um and so i think that uh you know in overlooking those kinds of moments what people end up doing is sort of signaling that this issue is not important or this, we don't like your way of protesting. We want, it's, it's a very, it goes into that paternalism you and I talk mm-hmm. about a lot on the left, at least among some white leftists, um, at least the way, the way things are articulated right now, right? Cause it's not everyone. I always have to emphasize that like not all white leftists, you know, like, not all, <laughs> but I think there's, there's a, a layer of, the online left and the leftists in general that still holds the keys to power in a lot of ways. Like they, they exercise power on our side. They may not have power within the system in quite the same way, but they still manage to exert power over um, the means and methods through which we try to articulate and form our, our, our leftist body of, you know what I mean? Like our leftist body politic. And so I, I think that there's a real problem there. Um, and there was a, an interview done, I don't know if it was done by Chuck Modi, but Chuck Modi definitely tweeted this out, where it was, there was an interview done with a young woman who was a Black Lives Matter protester at the March on Washington this weekend. And she basically said, like, we, on the, we are part of the left, right? Like, we agree. We want Medicare for all. We want, you know, free college. We want all of the same things that you do. And yet you ignore us or you denigrate us for the things that we're doing to also establish our right to exist as Black people in this country without fear, right? And so there's a real disconnect sometimes when you have, and and I've seen this as well, where people are kind of um, talking about Black Lives Matter as if it's like this corporate, it's already been co-opted by corporations and therefore it has no meaning anymore. Um, and that ignores all the like hundreds of thousands of people on the ground who are fighting for their rights. And this is including white people too. Like it's black and white and all sorts of races coming together to fight the police, like literally fighting the police. And they're being, you know, insulted and denigrated and basically being po- told that they've been co-opted when they're still doing a lot of very real work, you know, and it's, it's got to be frustrating for them um, to be sort of insulted in real time by people that they expect to be their comrades, you know? Yeah, sometimes it makes me wonder what people think no justice, no peace means. It's like, right. <laughs> no peace. It's like, if we're not getting justice, you're not getting peace. That's, that's the bargain here. Like, and it, it seems as though they're like, well, no, we, we want peace and we'll, we'll deliver justice. Just, you know, wait, wait a little bit on that. And it, a lot of the white left, I think, has also embraced the kind of idea that, well, we want to get you justice. We agree with your methods or we agree with, with your goals, but we can't, you know, sign on to your methods. And it's just, it, to me, it's just the, the frustrating part is just, I don't think anybody would, those people out there protesting have a lot of other things that they'd rather be doing, but they don't get to have that justice. And so they don't get to live in peace and without that fear. And so 
the only thing that they can do is present that in such a way that it disrupts other people's lives who otherwise would not have to live under that uh, fear of and without that justice. And that is just, it's so basic. And to me, it, it's hard to understand how, you know, intellectuals on the left are then able to dissemble into a, well, my racist uncle is going to be offended, so we can't say that. <laughs> right. And the uncle is the operative word here. Like it's family members that they're afraid to offend or they're afraid to, you know, they don't want to disengage these people. They, they still see them as loving and part of their lives in some way or whatever, but they're also afraid to confront them. Um, and, and if you have like, I don't know, like we say sleeping with the enemy, right? If you're sleeping with the enemy, it's going to be very hard for you not to say that you're sleeping with your uncle, but you know, if you're, <laughs> if you have a close relationship with someone who's representative or of, or engaged in, you know, white supremacy, it's going to be hard for you to distance yourself and hard for you to call that person out. I mean, this is the person who was part of your, your life, you know, and you saw positively, typically speaking, right? So it's kind of difficult to, to not, to, I guess it's difficult to recognize these people as the people we need to be fighting and not inviting into our circles in quite the same way that I think some people want to um, because they're unaware of or don't care that these kinds of people pose a physical and real tangible threat to people of color and people of marginalized economic, racial, social groups um, when they're trying to organize with one another, you know? So we have to really, I don't know, people need to get their priorities straight and there's a lot of work to be done. But I raise all of this because these are the issues that these women were dealing with in their time as well. Um, going back to what you were saying about the frustrations of like seeing this stuff rehashed in the present and knowing that it's been 50 years later and we're still seeing the same, the same problems, you know? Um, it's like some of it verbatim, but continue. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly right. And you know, you could pick this up and, and with the exception of a certain set of terminologies. So like sometimes instead of gender, um, they say sex and when it, when they actually like nowadays we would consider it uh, probably gender or like um, they have a few, like they say things like sexual identity to refer to masculinity and femininity, right? Or like woman and man. Um, that's the language that we wouldn't use anymore. We wouldn't call like female or male or woman or man sexual identity because usually sexual identity now refers to like LGBT or whatever, straight or gay or et cetera. Um, and so uh, other than that, you could pick this up and put it in the present and it would feel like, oh, did you write that? couple weeks ago you know like yeah like is this is this the medium post you just hit 10 you know what it's, so it's very it's very relevant and recent um in terms of recent stuff going on too uh so on that note let's get into the reading um again like i said it's very short so for those of you who have a chance definitely check it out we have it posted on patreon but it's also like on our twitter page and it will be in the show notes as well and as always just as a reminder if you're reading it and you have questions or things that you want us to discuss further in other episodes please leave us a comment um on the patreon page which is open to the you know public it's free or via social media and we'll try to respond to it in the next um, episodes because sometimes these things have a part two but then also just in like any other episode we obviously have the time um, to to discuss you know any questions or concerns or comments that people want to leave um, but getting into the reading uh, it basically lays out first of all like who they are um, why they've been meeting 
um, which we can go into in a little bit. And then it discusses, you know, what their vision of this collective work, what it should look like in order to be more inclusive and also sort of stick to the left-leaning goals that they have um, because they're basically arguing that many groups have unfortunately strayed from completing those goals because of their biases and because of their inability to recognize the ways that um, oppression is lived through different people in different ways. Um, and I think also, I mean, we could, we could talk a little bit about intersectionality, but intersectionality had not been coined at this point, if I'm not mistaken, because I think Kimberly Crenshaw's work was in the 80s or 90s. Um, and I'll, I'll include some of her stuff as well. Um, but basically this, this argument that they're, these women are making about kind of interlocking oppressions um, builds on a lot of the work that people like Claudia Jones had done. So Claudia Jones is a communist, a Afro-Caribbean communist. Um, she's, she had lived and worked in the United States, lived and worked in the UK um, and dealt with a lot of I mean, just complete and other state repression over and over and over again. Um, but she's definitely someone that we should talk about in a separate discussion on our, on like, like post-it note, let's talk about Claudia Jones because several of our <laughs> guests have discussed her. Um, of one of them being Sharice Burden Selly. She mentions her all the time. We've had others who talk about her as well. Um, but she's someone who's very important to this discussion of left feminism and especially black left feminism, right? And what that looks like. Um, and one of the, one of the sort of, foremothers, if you will, of what intersectionality means and how it actually is something that can be applied to leftist discourse and leftist ideology. And I think lately that's another problem I've seen where people have been trying to like say that intersectionality is somehow incongruent with leftism, which is like, doesn't make any sense. Um, but anyway, these women talk quite a bit about the ways that they're dealing with issues of class, issues of race, issues of gender, issues of sexuality. They're dealing with oppressions on all of those fronts, and yet they can't find a space where all of those issues are properly addressed. And they, they come to the conclusion basically that they need to meet, they need to meet, first of all, just for their sanity, right? Because they're so frustrated in these other spaces that they've been trying to organize in that they feel like they need to just meet to vent. But then their venting sessions end up becoming organizing sessions and you know spaces where they can talk and think out think about these things and take back the ideas to their respective communities um, but then also within it they come up with different terms um, not just terms in terms of terminology but terms in terms of like agreements and stakes and things that they're setting out um, for their movements that they want to be prioritized and they basically come to the conclusion that you know, they have to do things on their own sometimes to get them done right. But they also understand that for everyone to have liberation, the most oppressed people need to be liberated, right? So it cannot be a top-down process. It has to be a bottom-up process. Um, and and that, that sort of freedom of oppression has to radiate outwards. It can't just be like a, well, now that white women can vote, we're good. You know, um, there's, as, as people often say, there's no trickle down equality, right? There's no trickle down. Um, yeah, there's no trickle down equality. And so, yeah, why don't we start with the first couple of pages, Richard? Um, mm -hmm. We can get into a little bit about, uh, you know, why they're meeting, what they saw as significant for them to discuss and sort of how they frame black feminism um, in the setup for this piece. 
Yeah, um, uh, I guess some of the things that immediately kind of stood out to me in that first section was, uh, I guess, you, as you mentioned, the kind of description of their origin and the women's movement out of the late 60s and referencing it, and that a lot of the members had been active in it. But it was also kind of a what I picked up in the red or just kind of in how it was said is that it was something that had happened. It didn't seem as active in that the way it was phrased. I don't know. And I think you talk a little bit more about the, the context generally, but it feels as though the, that there was a feeling that the civil rights movement had somewhat like had a sort of an ending, but that there was a new move, a new wave of, of movements of both feminism and uh, liberation that this was being a part of and that was built out of that. And then uh, I guess one of the other things that I personally related to was uh, there's quote and it says, it was our experience and our disillusionment within these liberation movements, as well as experience on the periphery of the white male left that led to the need to develop a politics that was anti-racist, unlike those of white women and anti-sexist, unlike those of black and white men. And like, I, Personally, through my the last five, six, seven, eight years, really, uh, it's been a political movement and like trying to find a space. I, I've experienced as, and something similar. Now, I personally, uh, cis male, like I don't subscribe to gender binaries, but that's just kind of how I've grown up and how I've identified. And I haven't mined out to do the work there, so that's just kind of where I am there. But <laughs> uh, the I can only imagine like how much more marginalizing and uh, just alienating that experience has, has have to have been for black women and especially queer black women. And so that was just something that kind of really stuck out to me. And I was just like, wow, like it's not something I really had thought about. And it was also a moment for me to recognize how a lot of other uh, people from less marginalized or not really considered marginalized communities experience the recognition of the suffering of other people that they've been screaming about for as long as they've had lungs, but uh, hasn't really been heard. And so like, I can kind of understand, it gave me a moment of realization in both directions, I think. Yeah. And I, I mean, that, that line that you mentioned about the, you know, the alienation and the sort of being in between these movements and not finding a space um, definitely resonated with me as well. The difference, you know, the issues with like white male leftists, but then also the women's movement, both being alienating spaces for black women who are on the left and black feminists. It's one of the things that came up a lot actually in my discussion with uh, Malika Jabali about the Kamala Harris pick as VP, um, which you also check out as well, previous episode to this one. Um, but it's something that I think a lot of us have to deal with if we're part of marginalized groups on in terms of ethnicity, race, gender, sexuality, whatever, and we're trying to operate within systems that are made up of or at least dominated by people who are in the social hierarchy, the fabric a bit higher on the scale, right? Um, so it can be difficult because we're working through their biases as well. Um, but I think this, this first part where they're talking about black feminism, what's fascinating to me is that they rely on a lot of, of like the way they frame black feminism is they see it as dis, like directly connected to third world feminism, to workers. They don't say it, they, the, the way that they frame it is definitely like completely against the like bourgeois white feminist movement, which is 
great um, because I, and I said, like, I'm like really getting excited about this, but I like the way, I like the way they talk about it because I feel like nowadays what unfortunately happens a lot, I see this a lot in like online discourse and then some writing as well, um, is that there's often a separation that happens. So there's sort of, some people frame black feminism as like indirect conflict with black men or indirect conflict with um, the left, you know, as this sort of like bourgeois white feminism painted black, you know, or painted brown. Um, and so I think this sort of looking at, at these women are sort of in between the second wave and the third wave of feminism, but they have like their own perspective because I think black women in particular, and they talk about this, have always had a slightly different understanding of feminism because their feminism was not just about like um, being able to work because they'd always worked, right? Like black women in this country were slaves and then they were laborers. They were always workers. They were often, you know, having to help as breadwinners of their family, sometimes the sole breadwinners of their family, right? So this idea of feminism for them was not about like getting out of the home to work, um, which is what the, you know, bourgeois white feminist was concerned about. And it wasn't so much one of respectability because they weren't given the same um, you know, they weren't given the same uh, level of respect or, or honor or all of these sorts of, of, of norms created by the sort of Victorian, um, British, and by extension, American ideal woman. You know what I'm saying? Like they weren't seen as yeah. these like, like f f sensitive flowers that had to be protected um, because they were lower class women. They were poor women. They were black women. They were descendants of slaves, et cetera. So there was never this sort of protective shell around black women. Um, even if you go back to slavery, right? Like they weren't given the same rights as white women, period. But then on top of that, like they were violated constantly often with their men not being able to do anything to defend them, right? So it kind of dissolved all of this, this like protective shell that I think white women, not I think, I know, um, like we have historical and contemporary records to, to attend to this, but like that white women have often all, or always have had, right? Um, and so this, this idea of like the respectable white woman um, who was able to work and have children and do all these things, but still be seen and respected as a mother and respected as an equal and respected as, as a woman, that was not quite the same experience with that Black women had in the society. So they were fighting for different things. And so I think the fact that these women bring up, for example, abolitionist Black women like Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, these kinds of, of foremothers in, in the Black feminist movement is really important because it frames Black feminism as always being one engaged in a fight, right? Whereas I think some of the white feminists that they were dealing with, um, that these women were dealing with on a regular basis, of course, those women were engaged in a fight too, but it was often like a fight in many ways to define themselves against Black women or Black men, right? Um, and these women kind of mentioned that too. They're like white women generally um, did not see, you know, they, they were like the white women that they were dealing with in terms of their feminism were of course against patriarchy. But at the same time, these women in the Combahee River Collective are arguing that those white women at the drop of a hat, however, would ally themselves with the white men who were oppressing them so that they could collectively oppress people of color, right? Um, <laughs> And so like, eh, you know what I mean? Like patriarchy is terrible until you can be used to your benefit to like ward off the hordes of black people, you know? Um, so there's kind of a, 
a, a double-edged sword there. And I think these women recognize that very clearly and discuss it in their definition of what black feminism is. The other thing I just wanted to say um, in this section is that I think it's fascinating that they use terminology that like hints at intersectionality. So they say, for example, that their oppressions are interlocking. Um, they use terms like caste to talk about race and class and gender um, and gender, not a gender identity, but gender expression and, and um, sexual identity. And then they also have this they they position themselves as adversaries to the american system which is also interesting like they see black feminism at its root as an adversarial position so it's one it means a woman who's always fighting for her existence and her survival um they don't see it as just something that's like trying to get it's not they don't see their feminism as some some a group who's trying to just get recognized right they see it as a group that's actively fighting and sometimes physically fighting um for the sake of survival and so i think i, I thought that was really interesting to like define your movement on the basis of of action you know and like adversarial action react like reacting to and fighting against the elitism and racism and sexism that you're dealing with yeah, I don't know if it's mentioned in the first part in particular, but identifying just the the existence of black women as a uh, adversarial position to the patriarchal white cis male dominated society that just in existence, it it's an act of defiance and that the system responds uh, and treats it treats people that, that black women that way, especially. And one of the things that I guess I see in this that also resonates with uh, today's times for me in general is just that the the adversarial position and it is framed as black women being aggressive when really all they're doing is defending themselves against a system that is uh, uh, malicious. And so like it's defensive actions are seen as aggression, whereas the status quo aggression is just seen as that is the status quo. Right. Yeah. And it's, there, you know, there's always that, like, or not always, but lately people have been saying, like, is there the, the angry Black woman stereotype? Like, she's justified in being angry, right? Um, it's unfortunate that it's become a stereotype, but, like, if you look at, if you kind of scratch at it, if you look at the root of it, like, why is she angry? You know, like, don't Black women have a right to be angry? Like, fuck you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah the expression that like every day that this country doesn't burn down is is a testament to the the patience and the the willingness to be to compromise and all these things of the black people in this country it's like there's more than hundreds of years worth of abundant fucking reason to uh, just really not put up with it anymore and so it's right. that it's only reaches these boiling points ever so often and it's even even at these boiling points is rather controlled is a testament to willingness to work through this in as peaceable a way as possible and the simple and the relentless aggression from the state and from the system that wants to maintain that marginalization right and they talk about that i mean they mention like the stereotypes that come along with black womanhood um, from the society and how those stereotypes have operated to sort of separate black women into a unique category that can be oppressed um, and how they have come together in order to instead respond to their situation with love. Like they, they're saying that like their radical 
or sorry, I should say their, their embrace of themselves to love themselves is actually a radical act considering that the society repeatedly does the opposite, right? So they say, um, if you put this in, I mean, we don't really have page numbers um, on our version, but it would be around page four if you stick it into Google, um, Google Docs. But they say, quote, we realize that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love of ourselves, our sisters, and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle and work. So, like, I really appreciate that because you and I have talked a lot about this idea of, like, radical love and radical happiness on the left that sometimes feels like it's lacking, you know, because we're constantly involved in a fight um, and responding to things. But in some ways, like, certain times, um, and, and this is something that you hear a lot nowadays, but I think it's been cheapened because of the discussion around, like, self-care and stuff. Um, and self-care being more a matter of like what you can purchase and commodify, like what you can buy, like can you get a spa package and then you have self-care as opposed to like, you know, radical love of self um, in response to a society that hates you and like constantly exercises hate towards you. Um, so I appreciate their mention of that at love as a sort of shield of sorts um, of protection and also part of their fight. Um, because it's often missing from from our movement work and it should be at the center of it. Um, but on that note, going further in this second section, what they talk about is identity politics. This is where they kind of get, they start getting into that discussion. Um, and so they say, quote, this focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end someone else's oppression. And then in the case of Black women, this is a particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept, because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. So I really love this section of the reading because um, I think what's interesting is what they're saying is like, so throughout, so just to make it clear, like throughout the text, they're not saying they're not going to fight for other people. What they're saying is that we've been fighting for other people. We're always fighting for other people. We never take the time to check in with ourselves and sort of see what's going on with ourselves and our own community. Like we're trying to do that, but whenever we bring those issues up, we're, we're shut down, you know? Um, or the, the person or the people that we're trying to bring it up to don't respond well. Um, and they say, wait, like you often mention Richard, you're like, well, just wait a second. Like, just <laughs> we'll get to you. Like you're next, you're next in line. And then that time never comes. And so what they're saying is like, what they have to do in order for them to be whole, right? In order for them to be better fighters, in order for them to, to, be, to be able to kind of address their needs. First of all, they have to address their needs. They have to name them. They have to kind of understand what's going on. They have to understand their, their oppression. That's why they've come together in the first place, right? To sort of hash out what's happening to them. But then on top of that, they have to also be able to be in a moment in this space, the space that they're forming, to reflect on and fight for their own rights. Um, and in that way, that's what they mean by identity politics, right? They're not saying we're not gonna help other people, we're not interested in other people. We're saying that we live, we go through the world in a specific way. We experience oppression in a specific way as black, you know, working class, 
socialists, women of color, you know, fill in the blank. This is what we're dealing with. And we have to address what's happening to us on the basis of what is happening to us that is unique to our experience. It's not gonna be the same as white women. It's not gonna be the same as white men. It's not gonna be the same as black men. And so I think, you know, what gets lost in the discussion of identity politics is people seem to think that it means that you're bringing up these issues or the, you're bringing up the ways that you're being oppressed just to bring it up and have like a chip, a bargaining chip or like a token of sorts. And what they're saying is, no, 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 that's not what it's about. We're saying that we go through the world and experience oppression in a specific way, and that needs to be addressed. And that if we don't address that, no one else will. So we have to take a moment to do it for ourselves. And if, you know, if, if they're not going to stand up for us, who is, if we're not going to stand up for ourselves, who's going to stand up for us, you know? So I feel like that's what they're kind of saying. And, and they're also saying like, we don't want to be, um, we're not like special or anything in the sense that we don't want someone to turn our oppression into some kind of, um, you know, battle cry for themselves. We don't want to be tokenized. We don't want to be turned into, they say like, we don't want to be turned into queens or put on a pedestal, but we also don't want to be left behind. We don't want to be marginalized within these movements. We just want to be equal, you know? And I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, and it, the there's always this kind of uh, undercurrent of a feeling from the oppressive or oppressor group that this call for equality is a call for supremacy, and that that it's to turn the current overclass into an underclass rather than as for a, an, to be treated equally. And I think that's important. One of the other things that kind of reminded me of that is. Uh, the quote says, we realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism, imperialism, as well as patriarchy. And it, it feels as though that's like written to the, the white left today. That's just like, oh, you're bringing up these issues. And it's like, it's because you don't understand that class supersedes all things. And it's like, it links it. And it's like, no, no, we get all of that. We get, we have to destroy capitalism. We get imperialism. We get the page, what you're not understanding is that we have these other issues and it's like and that they need to be they need consideration too and if we don't as you mentioned if we don't raise them then nobody will and that's like a critical thing so it's like i think it feels it feels like it should be unnecessary but that they put in there specifically we understand what socialism is we get it right. it's like we're not, we're not using it as a cover to to make black women supremacy that's not that's right. not the grand plan here which is right. somehow what manifests in uh like uh some of uh people's minds and i think one of the other uh, that came in there and that came out of there was that uh white feminists had no need to have racial solidarity with the men, with men of their same race, be, unless it was to oppress uh, other uh, minorities or to uh, other oppressed groups. Whereas black women had uh, a necessity, saw a necessity in having solidarity with black men, but, and then it just, they just kind of discuss that, that tension a bit. And I, mm -hmm. I thought it was, uh, there was a particular line that stood out that, uh, in that part that I wanted to capture, let me just find it here, is that uh, we, we have a great deal of criticism and loathing for what men have been socialized to be in this society, what they support, how they act, and how they oppress. And it was like, I, that's a very, very polite way of putting it. <laughs> and they <laughs> and my, also my talk about the system. 
But they do, it's cool that they talk about the system too. They're not saying that like men are inherently like this. They're saying the system has been created to make men like this. They almost give men a little out, you know, like an excuse of sorts. Um, yeah, and they it's turn not it into systemic. <laughs> right. But it's cool that they turn it into, it's like, it's almost like they can hear their opponents as they're writing this, you know, like, cause you, you, even again today, you're like, instead of focusing on individuals, let's focus on the system. And they're like, yeah, we're focusing on the system. And we're saying that the system creates shitty individuals. <laughs> so like, <laughs> let's combat the system. Let's do that. But you'll also have to check yourselves, you know, like, it, uh, yeah, it's just really smart. It's well. Yeah, it was in. It, they also just talk about how uh, you mentioned kind of some of the differences between how black feminists and white feminists were not just how they behaved, but how they were perceived by other people. And I think one of the things that they capture there is that uh, these uh, women had identified or been identified as smart, and that that had affected their uh, their perceived beauty. And I just, I don't know if you had some thoughts or comments on that. I was kind of a bit curious about it, I guess. Yeah, um, I remember that section because they talk about smart, ugly, right? They say like mm-hmm. their, their intelligence automatically makes them ugly. And I think also what's fascinating is that like because these are queer women, some of them are more butch as well. Um, but I think that that also sort of plays into the discussion, right? Like the way their femininity is framed by the larger society, they're rejected from that. Like they're not seen as women in many ways, you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. And even though they're they're clearly women and they're, they're articulating their com- demands through feminism, through feminist lens, um, but they're rejected. They're, the society doesn't see them as women in the typical sense or women at all. It's kind of hard to explain. And I've had to, I've, I found in my like academic, um in academic spaces like explaining this sometimes people don't understand but like black women are not seen as women by the society generally um and by that i mean we are not treated in the same way that white women are treated we're not given the same benefit of the doubt in terms of being believed when it comes to sexual assault and of a grand variety of things um we're not listened to in the same way when it comes to um just sort of like I mean, on any, on any level, but also just in general, in terms of expressing our femininity, like it's, we're not taken seriously. And I think that there's a degree to which we have to go above and beyond to define ourselves as feminine to the point that it's almost caricature of what womanhood means in order to be seen as woman. And even then we're just sort of seen as like object, right? So if you think about like the, the recent controversy over the WAP video with um, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. It's sort of like black women aren't seen as women unless they're like hyper feminine, hyper this, hyper that. But then again, it goes into objectification, right? Like, are you like, who's, whose idea of femininity and womanhood are you, are you I, um, like displaying, right? Is it what men want? Is it what you want? Is this what actually women are? You know what I'm saying? So it kind of, it, it becomes, and, and there's also the element of like always being, there's a stereotype or trope of sorts that like black women are seen as super strong, like we're always strong, right? Um, and the problem with that is that we're not given the ability to be seen as weak. We're not being given the ability to be seen as like, when I say weak, I mean like human emotion kind of weak, you know, like the average person has their moments of weakness. And if mm-hmm. we're always strong, if, we're all, if the construction is that black women are always strong, then that means we don't feel pain. That means we don't need help. That means we don't um, need attention or focus on us. We don't need support. And so that then dissolves, it turns into things like mistreatment in the healthcare industry, mistreatment by 
other men, even black men, mistreatment by other black women, you know, like not recognizing each other as human. And so there's a long history of sort of like the dehumanization and the defeminization of the black woman. And I think that's what they're kind of addressing. But in particular, in general, women who are intelligent are disregarded and, and not really seen as equals to intelligent men, but they're also, you know, like insulted, basically. Like if, if you're a smart woman, you want to, people want to take you down a notch, you know, and the way they take you down a notch is instead of talking about uh, arguments related to intellectual pursuits, it's like, well, you're ugly. You're, you know, you're, of course you're, you're some like ugly woman. Cause you know, you know what I mean? Like if you think about mm -hmm. like, nerds or whatever, right? Like, they're not seen as cute or pretty um, because they're, they're too smart. They become competition for men instead of sexual objects for men. And I think that that's what they were kind of, they were kind of getting at there. And I think that's interesting the way when you, when you talk about it like that, I could see how internalizing a lot of those kind of perceptions, even the presumably, you know, positive ones like being strong or whatever uh, can result in having long, like negative effects on the other side in ways that, weren't necessarily uh i guess uh foreseen i guess mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and so like it's it's enlightening to me that it could be i guess the internalization of a lot of those negative kind of uh stereotypes or even the presumably positive ones like being strong can result in or then i can connect that to how uh, loving themselves is such a revolutionary act and like see how that connects to the larger picture that has been being drawn throughout the piece. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. Cause it's like, if you're strong, you don't need love, right. You don't need support. You got it. You know, <laughs> you're, you're mm -hmm. good. And I think that they're saying like, no one, I mean, on the one hand, as you said, you know, it's a positive stereotype, but it kind of operates like the, the Asian model minority myth, right? And I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of model minoritization for women, black women in particular, um, or women of color, but especially black women, because the idea is like, okay, we we make more money sometimes than black men, depending on the group of women. It's kind of, it's, it's hit or miss. And there's a lot of statistics floating around about this that people are still trying to understand. Um, but women, black women at least tend to have higher degrees, at least than black men. Um, they tend to go to college, university, grad school, et cetera, at higher frequencies. Um, there are a variety of reasons of why that is. Um, but we're kind of put in a position where like, uh, we're strong and we're super educated and we can, we support our families and we do all these things, but we're not women or we're not, we're not soft. We're not feminine. We're not, um, fragile we don't need care we support everyone we're and then you often hear the language of like we're the mule right because pack mules are really strong they can carry tons and tons and tons and tons of weight and loads right but that doesn't mean that they're happy doing that <laughs> you know what i mean like it turns it it, it makes it makes their it, it turns it into a job instead of something that we're doing by circumstance right like the, the reason that black women are taking on all these things and and why that is um, is often a response to our society not valuing us, you know, um, or, or a response to like our families not valuing us, a response to sometimes um, absentee fathers or absentee husbands or a society that doesn't support our husbands in order to support us. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a whole host of issues that's putting us in that position. And I think on the one hand, we as Black women have responded by saying, 
we're strong, you know, we can take on anything and we're powerful and we can do this. So on the one hand, it's, it's a positive thing and we're trying to kind of embrace the reality that we have to face every day, but it has a dark underbelly, which is there are circumstances that cause the situation that put us in these situations where we don't have a moment to relax and we don't have the time or the, the, the energy to care for ourselves. We're always caring for other people. We always have, right? Like, even if you think about like during the slave times, like we're literally, we were wet nurses for white babies. You know, we were, we were the ones who were breastfeeding those women's babies. We were caring for their children. Go through Jim Crow. You look at it. We can't sit at the same diner table or diner, you know, lunch table with you, but we're taking care of your children and we're cleaning your house. Like it's, it's, it's always this, this sort of um, like this sort of juxtaposition that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's incongruent. Um, where we're doing everything, but we're not given any appreciation. We're not giving any, given any support. We're not understood. We're not listened to. And so I really, I don't know. I think those, the parts that you just drew out, Richard, and what you were just talking about, like really capture what happens to us as black women. Um, but I think, you know, like really resonated with me just as a black woman reading this. And I think probably resonates with a lot of women of color um, who are dealing with, with sort of, social issues on the one hand, and then trying to navigate that as a woman on the other hand, it's, it's kind of, it's a double-edged sword. I wanted to address something on, in, that, in a similar section, like around that section that I thought was really good as well, um, where they talk about, uh, what, like, well, going back actually, what you said when they were talking about like the class oppression part, I think mm -hmm. that also was not just in order to say like, like to sort of cover it, right? Because I think you were saying like they're kind of anticipating the arguments of their detractors, right? Or like you guys don't mm -hmm. talk about class enough or whatever, like class. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, okay, we get it. But I think it also is in some ways, however subtle, a kind of reminder that like, we're not stupid. You know what I'm saying? We read Marx too. We read right. Engels too. We're fucking smart. We know the process. We also are coming even from oftentimes working class backgrounds. So you don't need to tell us, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that, that also, that was like a little, I mean, it's, it's said, as you said, very politely, right? Um, but I mm -hmm. think it was kind of one of those moments where they're saying like, look, we get it, but not only do we get it, but we live it or we're experts in it or we've read the same books as you and we're coming away with the same conclusions, but you're missing a part. Like y'all are the ones who are wrong, not us. And I think yeah, that it's that was like you guys just stopped halfway. Like you got part of the way there, and then you guys just stopped when it when once you were covered, you were done. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, there's there's more here, and it's like, well, worker includes everybody. It's like, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. That's right, and they say that too. Like they have um, right after they say that. Let me see if I can find the line again. Yeah, here we go. So it says here um, that we realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of political okay that's the part you read let me see there's another part where they have um mm, yeah here we go so like they say things like for example we are not convinced however however that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution will guarantee our liberation so they're like you made you all right but then what about us, right? Like, you're mm -hmm. also, what are you, you going to do for the people that you're leaving behind in this process? 
Um, and then they say, we have arrived at the necessity for developing an understanding of class relationships that takes into account the specific class position of black women who are generally marginal in the labor force. While at this particular time, some of us are temporarily viewed as doubly desirable tokens at white collar and professional levels. And this is like what I was getting at before, right? So on mm -hmm. the one hand, we're like hyper-represented in, in higher ed, we're hyper-represented as like CEOs and whatever. I mean, not, there aren't that many of us, to be honest, but there's like just enough to be like, look, you see, we have a black CEO. Like, I think there was a woman who was like over Walmart at one point, or like part of Walmart, they hired a black woman. Or even if you look at like the appointment of Kamala Harris, or if you look at the appointment of people like Condoleezza Rice, right? It's always like they can point to that one person and say, look, you see, we, we're looking at, after you guys. We're caring about you. We, we, we noticed you. We picked up one of you. So shut up. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we have one of you in the higher positions to so be quiet. But then the problem is what that does is it distracts from the grand majority. And this is why I say it's very much like the Asian model minority myth. It takes mm -hmm. a small percentage that's doing well, and it, it uses it as a cudgel against the rest of the community to say, why aren't you doing well? So like Asian, Asian communities that are poor, that are not doing well economically, that just an individual that may not be doing well academically, right? It turns into what's wrong with you? Why aren't you like the rest of your people? And so the way that black women who are put up in these higher positions are used is as if to say, What's wrong with the rest of you people? Why don't you get in line? Why don't you do like Kamala? Why don't you do like Condoleezza? Why don't you do like Oprah? You know what I'm saying? And it becomes this exception, uh, which is something that Michelle Alexander talks about a lot, the way this like black exceptionalism ends up working um, against us. And so it's interesting that they touch on this because it's like something I think very much fits into what we're talking about in the present um, with, with, you know, tokens, tokenized black people who end up distracting from the larger class interests of black, black people, and especially black women. Um, and she also, or not she, but they go into a little bit later as well, they start talking about Marx, um, which is also, again, kind of a reminder, I think, to the readership, like, yeah, we, we've read the same things that you guys have, and we came to conclusions that are more comprehensive than you did. Um, they say that we need to articulate the real class situation of persons who are not merely raceless, sexless workers. So again, the worker, like kind of deviating from the quote a little bit, the worker is not just this like generic white guy is what they're saying, right? The worker is also someone who has to deal with gender oppression, who has to deal with racial oppression, et cetera. Um, so anyway, quote, but for whom racial and sexual oppression are significant determinants in their working and economic lives. So literally the sexism and racism that they face also impacts how they're doing economically. Like this is, it's such a given, right? Like no shit, right. but people still don't get this. Like it oh, makes me crazy. So then they say, although we are in essential agreement with Marx's theory as it, it applies, as it is applied to the very specific economic relationships he analyzed, we know that his analysis must be extended further in order for us to understand our specific economic situation as black women, end quote, and I would argue, you know, further as queer women, as queer people of color, et cetera. Um, so I just, I don't know, I love this. And it's a shame to me that like people literally don't read this and then they're just like, identity politics are, are breaking up the left. And it's like, no, they're really like plugged into leftist theory, guys. They want the left to be better. This is so easy. Like, what is wrong with people? 
Yeah, and I mean, it's a relatively short document, and it's packed with good information. It's it's a, I've, to me, it's an essential read, and it's one that I think should be near the top of people's lists if they haven't really started reading very much yet, or if they're trying to get somebody into reading more. This is like it seems very fitting just because it packs a lot of this these ideas into a rather short kind of presentation, and especially for women, I think it provides uh, it eases some of the kind of what they refer to as a or craziness or whatever that's uh, gets built up as a result of more or less getting gaslit by society as what you're experiencing shouldn't it, it's just how it has to be kind of thing yeah i was gonna mention that i, th I was thinking that too when i was reading it because I, they have a section where they're like listen ladies you're not crazy okay like <laughs> what your experience is like what you're experiencing is like social malaise and it's like anti it's anti-blackness, it's anti-womanhood, it's anti-this, it's anti-that, it's, it's real, it's tangible, and here are the effects, and these are the effects that we're trying to combat. Um, I it, thought it was great. I was just gonna quickly mention this, like, I thought it was interesting that they, part of the, this whole process for them has been, like, digging into these things, because in their experience, no one had really examined the multi-layered texture of black women's lives, specifically in, in the way that, centered them rather than kind of on the periphery like i know i've read some uh, older like just uh, uh not uh, historical but just older text and like uh just general kind of uh, novel type stuff about like colorism and stuff like that and the women even when they're even the central figure in the story the kind of unique ex uh, experiences that they have as black women in the multi-layer texture as they put it in this piece isn't really explored nearly as much as it often is with the men in the stories. Right. There's also a, the way that they, just to break it down for people to kind of get, I want to like be more specific about what you're talking about. So in the text itself, they break down what this looks like in their experiences. So they say, for example, we would go to white women's groups and the white women didn't understand racism. And then we would go to black groups and the black men didn't understand sexism. And, or we would go to women's groups, black women's groups, and the black women would be heterosexist. And then, or we'd go to black women's groups and the black women would be classist, right? They'd be women of a slightly higher economic background and they didn't understand working class concerns. And so it was always this like, it was like a trying to fit a circular peg into a square hole, you know, it was like never quite right. And that's how they ended up like coming together in the first place. Um, but it was, it's interesting to me also that they like, they really talk a lot about class um, incongruency, like within the organization that they were trying to join, um, at least the women's groups and the black women's groups, um, which I thought was fascinating because that's another thing that's like often ignored in our contemporary discourse nowadays, where they act like for whatever reason, anyone who's bringing up identity concerns is for, is also rich. Have you noticed that? Like, uh -huh. <laughs> they kind of act like, like, like having concerns about race or gender or sexual orientation, um, or like, especially I see this a lot as it relates to trans issues. They act like all trans people are like Caitlyn Jenner, like these rich white women. And I'm just like, okay. have you not recognized that like black, first of all, black trans women are being killed at like disproportionate levels, um, including by other black people, right? They're not just being killed by police, although they are being killed by police as well, but they're being killed by other black people, specifically often black men. 
So what do we, what do we do with that, right? And, and they're often poor. They're often like economically marginalized as well. They're literally like perfect target audience for issues around health, issues around economic equality, issues around housing and job protections, like so many issues. And they're just like completely disregarding. They're just missing an entire segment of the population. And just for some reason, and I've heard like Zizek and other people kind of make these arguments where like trans identity is somehow a bourgeois concern. And I'm just like, what in the hell are you smoking? How can you look at this population and tell me that they're like not marginalized economically too and on, on all these other levels? Like, and it's and I think it's an and it's an it's an intentional exclusion, right? Like it feels intentional to me that they are framing these people. I think also often framing Black women, framing queer people as well, in general, as as an upper class group. And I don't know why that is, and I don't other than like to not have to deal with them. You know, it's very strange. Oh yeah, it is definitely bizarre. And when you take it, when you look, think of it from an internationalist perspective, it also it continues to not match up because transgender communities are often in marginalized uh, groups throughout the world, and like yeah. even where they're not necessarily as uh, you know uh, in in as much danger per se as uh, many people in the transgender community are in the United States, they're still uh, economically marginalized. Right, and it's weird. I just I don't understand this like. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but I think there's an intention. I think it's intentional. Um, at first, I was like kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt because I was just like, maybe they're just out of touch and they don't understand or like they're letting like white, again, sort of like what we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the overrepresentation at the top in order to tokenize and then mess up the people at the bottom, you know, like to hold them at a different standard or whatever. Um, I think that that on the one hand was kind of happening with the queer community because people who weren't queer were kind of looking at at them and looking at like celebrities and stuff and saying these are the representatives and and also these people keep bringing up these pesky identity issues and so they must be bourgeois in some way um but they were ignoring all of the socioeconomic concerns that people were raising and i i think at this point it's on purpose like i, I don't think I don't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore of being out of touch because we have too many examples at this point of people being murdered because they were being, they, let's say they were involved in sex work because they couldn't get a traditional job because of job discrimination on the basis of their gender identity. And then they, and or they couldn't keep their housing because of discrimination on their gender, the basis of their gender identity. And therefore they were put in a precarious labor situation. And then in that precarious labor situation, often sex work, they're then exposed to dangerous work conditions and work conditions that are not, they're not given healthcare, they're not given any sort of legal protections if something happens to them, if they're abused in any way. And on top of that, they're marginalized in the society and people know that. And so their Johns, the people who patronize them, are then engaging in dangerous and, and often life-threatening practices, including violence, sexual violence, rape, and murder. Um, and then they know, the people who do this know that these women can't go to anyone, right? They know that they don't have any sort of societal backup. Like they don't have anyone who's going to be looking out for them and defending them. They know that the police aren't going to defend them. So who are they going to call for help? And so I, it's, it's sort of like, it reminds me of the, um, the Holtzclaw guy. Do you remember this police officer who was like raping black women specifically? Oh, I, because, you remember that? 
Well, I mean, I, I'm remembering a case. It may not be the same one. But. Okay. There was a guy who like raped multiple black women. He was a police officer, Asian American police officer. Um, and he basically said like, I did it to them because I knew no one would back them up. I knew no one would believe them. And I knew no one would help them. And I think that the same sort of mindset operates when you see trans women being killed, especially black trans women um, at disproportionate rates to the rest of the community because of that same mentality, right? Like they don't have anyone who's going to back them up and help them in the state and in society in general, like they're, they're rejected on all sides. And so I think some of the stuff that these women are talking about kind of gets at um, contemporary issues that we're dealing with, with other groups as well. And I, when I say other groups, I don't mean like these are not black women, but I mean in the sense that like they're a specific group beyond what these women were talking about necessarily. Um, because they're taught in, in this particular reading, they're talking primarily about cisgender um, black women. But I, I don't know, I think that there's, there's a degree to which people on the left sometimes use the pop cultural um, visibility of a group and they mistake that for equality and it's not the same thing. Yes, the, the kind of superficial representation that can be readily identified as, you know, not endemic of policies that match that we can readily see in something like the Republican Party and the, the black people that they parade on stage during the RNC, but is a little bit harder to identify in the slightly more nuanced situations for some people, it seems. And one of the things I just wanted to add on there about when you're talking about the transgender issues and violence and not having anyone to go to, one of uh, like a common misconception about crime and deterrence is that, you know, punishment is a deterrent and uh, statistics and this research doesn't really bear that out. What actually is the strongest deterrent for uh, a crime or aberrant behavior is uh, the, the believing that you're going to be caught. And so the confidence that the people don't have anybody in society to essentially catch you just uh, emboldens uh, people to be even more uh, malicious. Yeah. Like they have, they have no, I mean, there's no accountability in that case, right? They're not afraid. And there's also, I mean, this issue of like shame comes up for me as well. You know, like if the society would shame that person for doing what they did, then maybe they wouldn't do it, but there's not even a shame element, right? It's just like some people are just considered disposable and others are not. Uh, it is an unfortunate situation that we've <laughs> arrived in. And it's, I feel sometimes that, uh, there's a sentiment generally that everything is already so messed up before I or we got here that then it feels overwhelming to be burdened with the responsibility of kind of unpacking and dealing with that stuff. But it's our responsibility. It's And the more that we're unpacking is the less that's going to be there for the next generation to have to to deal with and that's what a lot of these people have been thinking. And one of the things that stretches throughout the history of black women, uh, activists, radicals, whatever, is that it was constantly about uh, essentially planting trees that they wouldn't see the shade of. And so like, uh, as we benefit from so, so much of those, I, I see a responsibility to carry that on. And so I think the it, it becomes increasingly uh, necessary to take up causes of uh, groups that I don't personally identify with in ways that I don't see uh, the obligation for 
black women, especially queer black women or trans black women or uh, other marginalized women of color, especially. And yeah, indigenous I, women. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah. And I think that they have, like, they speak to that as well. Um, in the text, they kind of start talking towards the end about how to address certain things, issues within other groups. Um, and what I thought was interesting is that when they're talking specifically about groups that can exercise power over them, they basically say, like, it's not our problem to fix their shit. You know, we are, <laughs> we're doing the best that we can. You can only do so much. And at the end of the day, they also eventually have to take on the responsibility of fixing stuff that's going on in their own community. So like they say, um, when they're talking about racism within the white women's movement, they say that as black feminists, we are constantly, we are made constantly and painfully aware of how little effort white women have made to understand and combat their racism, which requires among other things that they have a more than superficial comprehension of race, color and black history and culture. Eliminating racism in the white women's movement is by definition work for white women to do, but we will continue to speak and demand accountability on this issue. And I think that that kind of gets at what you were talking about just now, Richard, um, like how we can move forward. I think that we are seeing some of that happen in bits and pieces, right? So like I personally speaking, and I'm, I, I find it a positive thing that we see more white people getting involved in Black Lives Matter. We have to kind of see how that will play out over time. But I certainly think that if they're putting their bodies on the line and they're starting to have these discussions and conversations with their loved ones, their family members, significant others, friends, um, if there is some, something in the air, the rhetoric at least is circulating, that's a good thing. There are still people mm. who need to do a lot of work. And I'm not saying that white liberals or white progressives or anything are perfect, not by any means. And y'all know that I'm critical often of white progressives who mess up um, because I think that at this point they've had too much time to be making some of the mistakes that they do. They're not mistakes at this point. It's like not an unforced error if you keep making the same mistake. Um, it's a pattern. But at the same time, I think that there is room for growth. But I think that they are the best messengers to themselves in many cases, right? Um, and this goes for us too. I mean, like I, I, when, I, when it comes to messaging, sometimes I'm going to receive a message better if it's in my language, you know what I mean? And by language, I just mean mm -hmm. like cultural language, right? And that's not too essentialized to say that I'm somehow diff so different that I have to have things done in a certain way for me to get hip to it or care about it. But there are certain appeals that people can make that are community specific. And I think that we know our communities best, right? We know what works best for our communities. And this is why like during political campaigns and things like that, you always wanna have people who are in touch with the community that you want to target because that's where you're gonna see the greatest successes. If you're dealing with people who may be from the community but who don't have any friends in the community, who haven't been in the community, who have who've, like been somewhere else, you know, with highfalutin, upper class, whatever, Harvard and Yale and all of this, and then you wanna go to the ghetto and attract people to your cause, good luck, you know? It has to be, there has to be a connection with a group of people. And I think that that's what they're kind of getting at. They're like, look, we we can scream to the rooftops what we need done, but if y'all don't go talk to your people, it's not gonna happen because they're not gonna listen to us. We've been socialized to not take seriously the concerns of marginalized groups, period. You know, that's just how it goes. Um, and that's within marginalized groups, you know, like we ignore ourselves. And so we have to kind of figure out, or they're trying to figure out, you know, like what's the best way of getting people on board. And they're saying, you kind of have to, you have to be the go-between between us and your 
your people for them to get it. They'll they'll take it better if they hear it from you. And I think there's there's also an aspect of you know like getting rid of the racism within the white feminist movement is white women's work or work for white feminists and is like there's an aspect of well like as a black man or you know for black women whatever is like want to work on the issues that we have within our community that we'd like to improve on and deal with you know so as black man is like i'd like to work on sexism with other black men i don't need to be working about worrying about getting rid of the racism among the progressive white left movement like that's not something i should need to be i should like i should be able to focus on improving like those aspects of it and because they all there's always going to be these kinds of room for improvement and if people aren't taking on responsibility within their own uh, kind of identities then and it put put burdening other more marginalized communities to express those things and help work help them work through it it leaves them with even less time to work on the issues that are specific to them that's a really good point and i think it's something that like i need to be better about because I feel like I spend a lot of time online like reacting to what I consider the reactionary elements within the left which are often more more times than not more often than not um, propagated by a white leftist unfortunately but again I think that has to do with biases that they have connections with their family members etc that they're not willing to break um, and just socialization right so again this is not about I'm going to take a page out of the book of the Combahee River Collective women and say, it's not about the individual, right? It's about the system that makes shitty individuals. They don't say it like that, but that's what it, I'm, I'm summarizing. Um, but then when they talk about men and they're like, it's not inherent to maleness <laughs> to be bad. <laughs> but not biological determinism, good. That's right, that's right. Um, but you know, I because they, they have to say that, which is sad because I think the issue is like, especially what they're reacting to, but it's something that we have to deal with now too where like people think that feminists or black people or whatever, like hate white men just because they're inherently bad. And it's like, no, we're not saying that. We're saying that like the system- I feel bad that they're like falling over themselves to like make it clear, like, no, no, we are really concerned about about black men and their concerns. And we we're like, we're with them in solidarity. (laughs) Like they say it like several times. It's just like, oh, this shouldn't be necessary. Like, right, we have so many. If somebody is going to read this and still read it as a, as a man-hating document. <laughs> I mean, think about, like, think about right now, again, like going back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, think about how this, the, one of the major tenets from this book, or from this, from this statement, the issue of identity politics, they have like one line about it, and how people have turned that into like this specter to be demonized on the left of all places, which is like freaking insane to me. Like, how can you take something as simple as just saying, look, you know, we have different issues that we deal with and we want to address those. How can you say, like, how can you take something that simple and turn it into this like God awful, like, oh my God, you know, like, these women are like, destroying the left by like saying that their lives are a little bit different because they have to deal with sexism and racism on top of classism. Like, <laughs> it's strange like how can you get and again I think that that comes though from a place of the reactionary side of the left it's coming from a place of racist and sexist bias that they don't want to hear this you know that they, they think that we're doing some sort of like you know we're, we're all secretly trying to take down the left by arguing that hey, you know, racism and sexism further impact our class inequality. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just, I don't know, it's so silly. Like, 
it just seems so ridiculous to think that people are getting all up in arms about that. That like very basic statement. It's like I guess I kind of get if it's uh if for people that haven't really engaged in any theory and are just kind of coming at these things from their feelings and emotional th- situations and like their personal lives and like that's how they've arrived here and but it, it's another thing when it's somebody who's very like intellectual and very you know has read a lot of theory and is very engaged in the kind of marxist thought to then just like i don't even it does I couldn't see Mark struggling with this. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it would be very intuitive to him. Right. Like, just it just wasn't, it just wasn't in his kind of scene, you know, it, to the limited degree that there was. And then it's like, and we saw that the people, Marxists that followed Marx took up this issue, even like internationally or like Mao and otherwise, like it, it was, there was a recognition of the kind of commonality and the struggle there. And it just—it's just bizarre to me that it's so like it's so hard for the uh, particularly Western left and especially white Western left to just kind of wrap their mind around. And that's why I see it feels intentional. I mean, it just—I I don't understand. Like, okay, if you have three people, right, and one person has a tray, and the tray is like fifty pounds, and it's kind of heavy, and they're like, "Yeah, this tray is heavy." And then you have a person with a tray and you add 20 pounds to the tray. The tray is heavier. They're gonna like, hey, my tray is heavier than yours. Do you wanna help me out a little bit? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and then you have another person who has a tray, they add 50 pounds too, and their tray is the most heavy because they added weight to it, right? Not that they mm-hmm. gave them a different tray necessarily, but they just added a different level of weight to the tray. And that person is going to say, look, y'all, you know, like, I am, I feel for you that your tray is 50 pounds. That sucks. But my tray is 100 pounds. So I'm going to need additional help carrying my tray. Like, this is a, it just, it's a, I'm saying it in these, like, really kindergarten style, you know, like, breakdowns. Because it just, it, to me, it just seems so, ba- I, I don't know, it seems so basic to me. And maybe because I've, I've experienced it, right? Like, maybe because I am a Black woman. I understand, and I'm a black woman who's had a working class background, who continues to have a working class background, who does not is not rich by any means, not even close. God, I wish, but woo, not anywhere close. <laughs> um, and who has dealt with sexism, who's dealt with racism, who's dealt with classism and class inequality on a grand scale, who's who's literally applying for jobs right now and thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to do with myself in the next ten years if I don't get a decent job? Am I going to be reliant upon my husband for income and then his income is also in and out like these are things that I'm thinking about in real time and I think that's why for me reading this really it resonated with me and I also don't understand why people can take a document like this that's so basic and clear and they literally come up with like they address all the detractors throughout it I mean almost it's almost weighed down by their degree of trying to like get people to get them that how can you take a document like this and like turn it into like the I don't know the such a to demonize it. and I, I guess the only explanation I have and that I keep going back to is that I think it's just about the infiltration of right wing ideology on the left because this is what this is the biases that like the biases that they're fight these women are fighting against you know they're saying it's reactionary to be racist on the left it's reactionary to be sexist on the left and in order for us to have a better left. We have to get rid of this, these problems, right? 
Like you can't, you cannot fight for all workers if you think some workers are inherently unequal to you because they were born in one gender or one sex or one race. Right. Right. <laughs> this just feels like the like the only logical extension you can arrive at. It just it's just I what like yeah. I. Uh, <sighs> I mean, it's it's funny because because people are gonna be like, why are they laughing? It's not funny. It's funny because we've had to say this how many times now? Like how it, it's for us. It feels like, and I don't just mean me and you, Richard, Wendy. I mean like in general, people of color on the left and women on the left women of color on the left having to say this out loud and like it just seems so so easy to understand for us because we live it and that people still don't get this is it's so absurd that it makes us laugh you know like you can't help but laugh because it's so basic yeah it's just so (laughs) absurd just like i mean you're really the thing that gets me too is that it becomes with such assertive and aggressive ignorance right like and, and confident ignorance and, and proud ignorance. And it's just like, I don't need to know that because it's identity politics and that's bourgeois. Like what? Like you don't get to just uh, arrive at these beliefs without mm-hmm. investigating them. That's not how Marxism works. And, you <laughs> know, to play devil's advocate, right? I think, and I mentioned this in the, what, the uh, delete your account interview. You know, I think there are some people who go far, like very far. I think sometimes their concerns feel trivial to the average onlooker, right? And if you are, you know, like drilling down so far on a specific issue that doesn't seem all that relevant, especially considering everything that's going on, it can feel like, like, why are you focusing on that? Like, who cares if, if this is the way that someone, if this is what someone said, or if, who cares about our understanding of, I, I use the example of like, some people had been debating the concept of time and whether it was Eurocentric, which it is, but like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna write a treatise about it, but I reckon, like in my own research, I understand like time is understood differently by different cultures and the way we think of history and all of this and progress is different based on your personal experiences and your culture, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay, fine. But I'm not gonna spend exorbitant amounts of time debating it i understand why people might want to and that's okay and i'm not going to spend my time demonizing those people because i have better things to do with my time so i think sometimes though that when i see people doing what i consider like going overboard like they're they're being so politically correct or they're doing they're doing so much about identity that they kind of lose the forest for the trees i don't demonize those people because i think they're on to something insofar as they are at least having deep thoughts about the reality in which we live. And they're questioning the norms that we've established on the basis of things like Eurocentricity, racism, sexism, classism. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. I don't think though that, I I personally, I think that the people who are like attacking those people, there's something wrong with them because they're, they're, they're trying to like go after these people who like aren't really addressing them. Like if you're having a debate over the Eurocentricity of time, it doesn't necessarily have to concern you like on the other end, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to spend 30 minutes degrading people who are talking about stuff like that and saying that they're distracting from class politics because you're the one who's distracting from class politics because you're focusing on that person instead of working on class politics. You get what I'm saying? 
Like, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you're the problem, <laughs> not them. Like, they're not the problem. You're the problem. Like, focus on, do your work. You know what I mean? Like, don't worry about what people are doing on the other side. They're not taking away from the work that we need to do. You're taking away from the work we need to do because all you're focusing on is these nitpicky, stupid things that have nothing to do with you, that if they don't concern you, you could just scroll past. And instead, you're harping on that because you don't want to put in the work that's required for us to get where we need to be in terms of class equality. You're the problem. Not that. Exactly. I mean, that's to me, a lot of it is, it's, it's, there's a lot of work in it. The, in understanding and mining out the kind of uh, ideas that are just planted in our head long before we start to even really think about what we think about. And it's so deep in there that it takes a lot of effort and work. And sometimes it's not fun. And sometimes you discover like, oh, wow, I now understand this thing I did in my past is worse than I thought it was. Or, you know, oh, I didn't know I was hurting people in this way. I didn't, I didn't know I was offending this person that I value dearly or whatever, you know, it was like the, when you start investigating those things, you start to discover things that aren't always positive about yourself and it's not a fun process. And it's, easy to want to avoid that and I see that's what I see a lot of in this is you know it's like or if it's not them individually personally it's somebody that they're close to or somebody that they know or somebody that they value or as or sometimes it's somebody that has economic power over them and so that like they want to include them in their political movement and they can so long as they don't talk about this they don't talk about race or they don't talk about gender or they don't talk about queer people or whatever it is that that they're willing to sign on to all the other class aspects of the argument, but they're not willing to sign on to that. And in order to continue to appeal to them, they're willing to sacrifice and set aside the concerns of these more marginalized or these other marginalized groups. And that just doesn't match up with the underpinning philosophy. So you, mm -hmm. you gotta, you gotta can investigate that about yourself. If that's some place that you find yourself. And it's like, right. that's what I do is like, if I find myself disagreeing with some marginalized group or person and expressing some idea, I investigate, well, why do I feel this way? Is this something that I've arrived at myself? Is this something that is just, is it a gut feeling? Is it an emotional reaction that I'm having? You know, it's like, dig into it, explore it. And, and like, but and like I said, sometimes you discover things that you don't like about like something, but that's room and that's development. That's growth. Right. Yes. The growing pains on the left are difficult for some people to take. Um, and, and, you know, building on that, I think it is really just for some people, it becomes like a rhetorical crutch that they rely on. And that's why I think people have been focusing on this idea of cancel culture so much because they don't know what to do with themselves. And I've mentioned this before. I've mentioned it in several other podcasts. I've tweeted about it. I've written about it. I think right now what is happening is we're seeing excessive hand wringing over quote unquote cancel culture because these people are uncomfortable with the fact that after years and years of saying that race doesn't matter or it matters, but it's like on the side and identity politics and blah, 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 and freaking out about that. We have to do class only. That's the only way we're going to get a working class, a multiracial working class built. And we need to go after Trump supporters and all this nonsense that didn't work. And then they're seeing hundreds of thousands of people come out of their homes in the middle of a pandemic to fight police brutality and policing as we know it and particularly racism, right? Like they're framing it as an anti-racist project. I think that that makes them feel incredibly impotent because they spent all these years shitting on race politics. And then now what they're seeing erupt in the streets as a galvanizing point to like work around and to fight over, um, fight for, I should say, is this matter of racial equality. Because what people are saying and have been saying for freaking centuries at this point 
is that class inequality is a huge problem. We need to address it. But as we address that, we can't ignore the ways that racism adds to class inequality and takes away from our ability to mobilize together. If you and I are trying to come together for class equality and you think of me as less than you, when it comes time for distributing those resources, I know I'm not gonna get the same chunk as you, right? You're gonna get more mm -hmm. than me and that's gonna be a problem. You're gonna stand, you're gonna use an upper class, like, 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 like work, like ruling class elite, framing of society which is you know like hierarchy by race and you're going to use that elite stratification to defend your right to get more than me even though we're supposed to be comrades in arms for equal resources and distribution thereof that's not going to work right because you're using the language and the tools of the elite and operating with those in mind in a project that's supposed to be equal and if we still have that standing in the way we're never going to achieve class equality. We're never going to achieve a working class coalition that really works if we have people that are set on destroying black people, queer people, women, whatever, within that group. It just ain't going to work. Like once, once everything is, because this is the thing, people often talk about unions and stuff. Unions are great. Mm -hmm. But if you read the history of unions in this country, you recognize that there have always, always been white people and especially white men working class or otherwise who have taken on elite constructions of race and gender and god knows what else immigration as well like you know this issue of xenophobia is very very present in unions and they've used that kind of discrimination as a means to limit access for people of color and women of color in particular this is the reality and women of color and people of color as a whole have had to form alternative alternative unions even. I mean, there's writing about this in the United States as it happened in Detroit and other parts of the Midwest industrialization um, with black people. They had to form their own groups in order to get their needs met because they were dealing with so much racism within the unions. Like don't look me in the face and act like unions are the end all be all to fixing our class inequality problems. We have to fix multiple problems at once. And one of those problems that ended up galvanizing people right now to get out of their homes and risk their literal lives to protest was race, race racism to be more specific. So there's something happening that people don't wanna address because they are afraid, because they now have egg on their faces. I think they're, they're embarrassed because all their, their nonsense over the years about race doesn't matter, race doesn't matter, race doesn't matter. And then they see race matters. <laughs> it really right. does matter. And then the, they want to, they won't, they want to denigrate it. You know, they want to say it, it they, they want to talk about something else is what I'm saying. They're saying that, no, no, no. They're trying to dictate what we talk about. That's why they're talking about cancel culture. Every episode they make on Jacobin, on all these other pages. That's all they talk about now because they don't know what to do with themselves as they watch the, the freaking world erupt over racist policing. They just don't know. They're, they don't, they feel out of place, you know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Rant over. No. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that just kind of came to my mind while you were going on is that uh, I think that race consciousness is a lot higher in this country than class consciousness. So absolutely. like people are far more aware of like the differences between like race and like as we perceive it in this country versus class. And so like there are, you know, people out protesting about rent and some great direct actions uh, in like impeding the ability for people to get evic evicted and some of the other issues other economic issues are out there and have people motivated but it's 
undeniable that the the massive uprising that we saw across the country and continue to see was inspired primarily by race or racist or racist policing as you said mm-hmm. and, and like, those people are not un- unconcerned with the other stuff too right i mean this is part of it like if you think mm-hmm. about the black lives matter and other black groups activism that's going on in the streets why are they doing mutual aid like this is this is a thing that's come up over and over they're trying to help people who are homeless and people who are newly homeless on top of that right because literally like food banks are running out of food they don't have resources they don't have money they can't go buy stuff this these groups are trying to fill in those holes to help people on an economic basis and they're not just helping black people right although black people are being disproportionately hit by covid and housing inequality and all these things in this country because of reasons we've already talked about ad nauseum but they are they are trying to fill in the blanks where our society and our government have fallen and not done their jobs and so like to sit there and act like there's no way for race discussions of racism to then also include addressing class inequality it's just ridiculous because it's not true it's literally anti-historic ahistorical and against what's happening in the present like you see what's happening in the present and they want to deny it because they're not the ones out there putting their lives on the line they're sitting up posted up in front of their computers or wherever they live often on you know in nice houses and whatever in brooklyn and la and they're telling us that race doesn't matter and none of these movements matter when those people are actually doing the real work on the ground to help others that they act like doesn't matter but you know whatever <laughs> i'm mad yes i'm angry about this it just yeah, i imagine <laughs> i imagine one question that comes to mind is how is i i as a white man how can i lead this movement of black <laughs> lives <laughs> like it's like oh that's not gonna work well we need we, this isn't important we need to talk about something else something right. i can be centered in something i can be the focus of something i can be you know look to as the in the most informative source rather than like because if if you want to be informed about what why black lives matter is at the in the condition that it is why is the why are these uprising all those types of things if you're if you want to get that from people that are understanding of it you have to go to the sources of other black voices is like which is not the white guy who is concerned about so like there's a i think there's a material uh, aspect to this as well like that they both can't uh, materially benefit and then also can't or like i can't financially benefit and also can't uh, be seen as a leader in this moment uh, if so long as racism is centered and black voices are expected to be the most informative on the perspectives at play That's right. And there's also literally like on the ground, as I said earlier, you know, and I think this is what goes, brings us back to our reading quite a bit. The people who are on the front lines who are doing a lot of work in, at least in terms of the, the mutual aid stuff, because obviously they're, they're like white people who are literally putting their bodies on the line too. And like, thank God for those people, you know, I appreciate those people doing that. But in terms of, in terms of people who are doing a lot of the mutual aid stuff, you know, the people that I, I see in these interviews are black women. A lot of them are women. Um, or at least, you know, women like presented, presenting as female, right? And I don't know how they personally identify. But in the interviews that I've seen, they're almost all women. A lot of them are queer women. And these are people that, whose work gets ignored. And as you mentioned earlier, like they're, once a white guy comes, then maybe they'll pay attention to what they're doing or they'll, it'll, it'll kind of validate it for the mm-hmm. society, which again goes back to the the issue we were talking about before about like how racism and sexism do actually matter in terms of how we talk about class equality um, and equality within these movements. But like 
you can't deny what's happening. And I think in order, as you said, for them to deny it, they have to reroute the discussion and reroute the discussion to something where they're the authority, right? And, and I agree with you 100%. I think that that is exactly what's happening. Um, and I think that the answer to that is to continue doing what we're doing in terms of, when I say we, I don't mean me and you necessarily, although I know we are also doing our own part in this fight. Um, but mm. people who are on the ground, who are doing work in these movements, who are helping other people, who are putting their lives on the line, keep doing that. You know, right now we're seeing people get attacked in the streets and murdered, literally murdered. We saw it, you know, with Charlottesville. We've seen it before, centuries before. We see it in the present over and over and over. We do not have anyone to help us. We're on our own right now. And I think that as a society, and especially on the left, we have to support one another. And that does not look like shitting on people for, for calling out racism within these movements, because with these movements should be where we can go for help. This is where we should have mutual aid. This is where we should have support. And if the place that should be our place of support is abusive, is offensive, is harming people, doesn't care about us, is denigrating us on the basis of our identity, it's not a place that I wanna be, right? It's not a place that I consider my political home. And I think for us to establish a more connected and salient left, instead of going the direction that I think is incredibly reactionary, which is telling people to shut the fuck up and not to talk about their issues, where we need to be going instead is saying, how can I help you? How can I do better as a human being that recognizes you as my equal? Where am I falling short? Where can I go as a cisgender woman and do better in recognizing the needs of trans women and men and non-binary people, right? What can I do to help in terms of getting rid of my biases because of the society that I've been raised in to better um, work with, respect, and include people like that in my movement? right? That's what I want. And that's the direction that we should be going in. Instead of telling those people to shut up and that's cancel culture and this and that, which is entirely reactionary, we should be saying, how can I help? How can I do better to make our right. space more inclusive? And we should be asking ourselves that first, you right. know, like before we, before we look to, you know, somebody, some person of the marginalized community to kind of, to hold our hand through it. We should be asking ourselves these questions first, doing our own work, digging, like, digging into our own biases, doing those things long before we're approaching people that are, are like in that are represented in these groups uh, to ask them to do any of that work for us. Mm -hmm. Like it's fine to, uh, to look at the, the work that they've already done. And sometimes you can get reference to it from somebody or something. But the idea is, I think in my opinion is to do a lot of this work internally first so that like you're not seen as, essentially, oh, well, what do I got to do to be, you know, like, you know, kind of a, uh, in an aggressive or, you know, confrontational way, if that makes right. sense. Right, like, and I think what's happening, like, something you said kind of sparked this in my head, but, like, what's being demanded of us right now is make room for my racism, make room for my sexism, make room for my transphobia, instead of make room for Black people, make room for women, make room for trans people. You see what I'm saying? Mm. Like, it's, Absolutely. it's not, it's, like, this cannot be the direction that we take the left because that just makes us like the right, you know? And the right is ironically in some ways 
more inclusive they're because they're trying to like clean up their image right so they're like look we have black people look we have women look we have queer people right they're trying to make themselves out to be more inclusive than the left and unfortunately and i see this in brazil too a lot because what they do is they'll appoint people of color women etc into these like higher positions so even though they're also fascist it looks nicer because they're like oh but look we have like they kind of they turn identity politics on their on its head and try to use them as tokens right um, and instead, I think what the left should be answering with is, we want more diversity in our ranks. We want more women. We want more people of color. We want more queer people and trans people because we, we value their perspectives in this fight. And we want them to be as, we want them to be leaders in our movement because they can really show us exactly where we need to focus our energies to make sure that everyone is pulled up and equal. That's what we should be doing. And instead, I think people are reacting ironically it's like they're trying to outright the right and i'm not sure why that is um other than all i can say is grifting and intentional disregard for their fellow their fellow leftists their fellow comrades you know there's something wrong and i don't know i, I think that there are many directions that that the left should be going in right now that they're unfortunately dropping the ball on and they're going to continue to lose more and more people and when i say left i'm talking about the real left like socialists and marxists and communists and stuff i'm not talking about liberals but i think liberals as well are prime they're like ripe for the picking in terms of turning them into better into comrades i think there is some potential there and i think the potential is in the fact that you do see some i'm not talking about establishment liberals like hard, hard establishment people. I'm talking about liberal voters. And you see people coming out and voting for black, brown, you know, Muslim, whatever, fill in the blank, ethnic group and racial group, religious group. They're voting for those people with their socialist uh, agendas, right? So they're voting for people like Ilhan Omar, they're voting for people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they're voting for Jamal Bowman, Jamal Bowman. Um, because they see, I think on the one hand, they, they first of all are looking at the identity stuff, right? They're saying, I see someone like me in a position of power. That's what I want. I want someone who's gone through what I've gone through, who can reflect my concerns and really represent me. So they are looking at this identity stuff, right? They're looking at that. And at the same time, it's almost like a Trojan horse to push forward socialist agendas. And so I think what, and I don't like framing it like that, but that's the reality, right? Because you saw when Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was first elected, people were really excited about her who were like Clintonites. There were people who liked Hillary Clinton who also liked Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez because those same women, mainly women, had been complaining that, oh, all I see is old white men getting in office. And so she was exciting because she bucked against that, that tradition. On a very, what we would, on some people on the left would call a superficial level, right? It's just identity. But that matters because then she was someone who could get in there and regardless of what complaints we have about her, because she has her own issues, right? There are definitely some know. stuff on foreign policy and things like that where I'm like, what are you doing? Um, but I think just on a basic level, she has been an advocate for a lot of things and been outspoken about a lot of things and people like her have been outspoken a lot about a lot of things with Sheeta Slib, especially Ilhan Omar, especially where they have been able to say things that I think uh, that people can't check them on because it's like y'all complained and complained and said you wanted more diversity. So here's your diversity. You got it. And now I'm going to use this as a, as a way to push for a better left agenda, at least something that's marginally better than what we have in liberals and the 
establishment Democrats. I think that there's potential there. And I think that that's what we should be taking advantage of. Like use, play the game, play the game and turn it on its head and say, all right, you want diversity, here's your diversity. And now I'm gonna talk about class inequality. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I mean, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Am I, am I crazy for thinking that? Like, is this not an avenue I, that we should pursue? I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's somewhat natural. Like, I mean, I feel like it's just kind of, if it's not deceptive in that way, you know, it's, it's kind of up, up front, you know, it's like, I'm campaigning on these issues, you know, and these are the issues and I might not use certain terms that might, you know, uh, set people off or whatever, but the clear kind of undercurrent of, uh, kind of, at least at minimum social democratic, if not democratic socialist policy is there. And so it's not, it doesn't feel deceitful to me. So I feel like it's just a matter of, yeah, it, it disarms a, uh, a uh, angle of attack. And we've seen this before. I mean, it was used against Bernie Sanders essentially, you know, and the, his supporters to, which to varying degrees of accuracy, but that it was basically a white male leftist or white male movement. And this is what white males want. And this is a white male thing. And so when you put a politician like AOC or Ilhan Omar or anybody else up there, the Jamal Bowman, uh, you disarm that angle of attack. Right. For sure. And it, it's something, I, I don't know, I think that people should continue pressing on that front and push for even further left policies. Because as I said, these people are okay, like they're good uh, compared to what we have now. But we need to go yeah. further than that. <laughs> there's a lot of space between where we are now and my ideals, but like, yeah, <laughs> right. like they're much, there's a, also quite a bit of distance between even folks like AOC and uh, just your run-of-the-mill liberal Democrat. Like there's quite a bit of space there. And that's, that's, there is some substance there. And then, and to me, um, I subscribe to concept of non-reformist reforms. And so like, there are things that you can do that could, could potentially improve the conditions in which the revolution can manifest while also not getting everything you want. Right. And I, speaking of things that we want, I want to go back to the reading really quickly because I, I just wanted to touch on something that I think was interesting um, in part four, which is the last, I think it's the, the last section, okay. yeah, the last section towards the end, last couple of pages, um, they lay out sort of their platform, which is also something that's left out of many discussions of, of this particular document, um, that at the end they lay out sort of what they see their job as doing within these movements, something that they're, things that they're pressing for that they feel would disproportionately affect uh, women of color and black women in particular, poor black women. And I think that it reminds, like the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up now is because we were talking about, you know, socialist agendas that are pushed by people of color, women of color, et cetera, who sort of buck the trends of the neoliberal establishment, even while operating, trying to operate within that system. Although I think that there's some discussion to be had on whether or not there can be successes in that way and through electoralism as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, we've kind of had in other other um, discussions <laughs> here and there, um, but I think that this this part is cool because they lay out some of the things that they they see as not just benefiting 
black women, but like as a result, if, if you can benefit the black women, third world working people, that it will benefit the society as a whole and make for a much more equitable society and like one that, that operates, that functions better because you have a, a, a more um, equal and, and cared for working class. And so they say here, um, the quote, the inclusiveness of our politics makes us concerned with any situation that impinges upon the lives of women, third world and working people. We are of course, particularly committed to working on those struggles in which sex, race, uh, or sorry, race, sex and class are simultaneous factors in oppression. We might, for example, become involved in workplace organizing at a factory that employs third world women or picket a hospital that is cutting back on already inadequate healthcare to a third world community or set up a race rape crisis center in a black neighborhood. Organizing around welfare and daycare concerns might also be a focus. The work to be done and the countless issues that this work represents merely reflect the pervasiveness of our oppression. And so I, I really like that part because they're saying like, look, we have to have a holistic approach when it comes to resources and addressing our needs. Um, and I, I really, I don't know, I appreciate that. And I think it's something that we have to also think about because when we talk about, you know, for example, Medicare for all, okay, Medicare for all we need, and I'm all for it. I have all people need it a lot. You know, I have a I have MS, I have asthma, I have a baby. There are all these things that I'm going to, I need to go to the doctor a lot, you know? Um, but I also recognize that like there are certain issues within healthcare that also need to be fixed. You know, there are issues of racism and sexism, linguistic barriers, all sorts of stuff. Happen. Classism as well, right? Because they often say that when poor people go to the hospital, they're mis they deal with a lot of mistreatment. And that's of course, it, it's like deepened and worsened by factors of racism and sexism and the like. So like, how do we, on the one hand, address a major deficit in our society um, in terms of healthcare, but also make sure that that healthcare is equal and also make sure that the healthcare is like holistic and supports the entire community, not just, you know, a couple, a couple of groups. Um, and same goes with unionization, same goes with childcare, same goes with, you know, uh, college for all, right? Making sure that people are not just going to, not getting, not just getting support in college, but making sure that they're graduating from high school, making sure that they're educated in a way that they're prepared for college, et cetera. So there are all these additional steps that we have to keep pushing on. And I think that sometimes people get stuck at one place because we don't have that one thing. They're like, well, we've got to focus on this one thing. We don't have time for all these, like, all this minutia, but it's not minutia, right? Like it's not minutia to ask, to, to make sure that like the system that we're fighting for is a system that's going to operate to address all of our needs. I think that's like part and parcel with, with, with like social struggle, right? We don't want to mm -hmm. half-ass this. We need the whole thing. And I think that asking for the whole thing is where we need to start instead of starting with a compromise of like, well, we're good with Medicare for all, but we're not going to address all these other problems. Like let's address the whole beast and then go from there, you know, like get what we can from there instead of just starting with the compromise point. Um, but I think that they're kind of addressing that here. They're trying to say like, what, what can we do to fill in all of the gaps? Yeah, and it's important because just getting access to Medicare or to healthcare isn't going to resolve the disproportionate deaths during uh, giving birth or the like not being listened to by doctors or like any of the other uh, aspects that are critical to not just like the comfort but the survival of black women and to have them marginalized is 
an injustice for all of us. Absolutely. Um, and I think too, like this can be extended. I think that's what's the cool, the cool thing about the document is that it's, it feels like a living document, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you can always add in more to it, like not just black women, um, because obviously, as I said, they're dealing with black, queer, cisgendered women, but we can always add in like, what about trans women? What about, you know, uh, they, they kind of hint at, they talk a lot about third world women and third world workers, but like, what would a document like this sound like? for like Dalit women in India who are workers um, and who are neglected and abused on the basis of their caste, right? There are all these sorts of parallels that we can draw and apply from this document to other groups. Um, And I think it's, that's what's so cool about it. And I wish that more people read it. I mean, I read it in college actually for a class and I kind of never thought about it again until recently um, with everything coming up all the time where it was being discussed and this idea of identity politics kept coming up and people didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I think that there is a kind of, I'm going to just say it outright, I think that the reason identity politics as a, as a term and an idea is so distorted is precisely for the exact reasons that these women are fighting, like this bias against Black women um, within the left. And I think that that's why their ideas are not taken seriously, or if they are taken seriously, they're distorted to the point where they're so far removed from what they actually meant that it's it's not the same idea anymore. Um, and they have to keep trying to rehabilitate the original meaning because they're not being listened to. Like this is literally like the the, as I keep saying, the idea of identity politics on the left is what we're actually talking about is the the distortion and subsequent weaponization and co-optation by liberals of identity politics. That's not the same as identity politics, right? So Yes. It'd be <laughs> nice if we could just if we, we should there should be some shorthand for this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Like not a whole sentence, but you know. It's but like, that's that's a critical <laughs> point that I've like I've felt had to be made multiple times and couldn't will continue to be made have to be made, I think. Yeah, and then maybe we should come up with another, t- I think what should, what's going to have to happen eventually is that we're either going to have to come up with another term for identity politics, like the original meaning, or we're going to have to come up, and this is my preference, we're going to have to come up with another term for the weaponization and distortion of identity politics mm-hmm. by liberals. That, that's what we're going to have to do. Um, and, I, and I don't know what that terminology is, but right now I'm, uns- I'm not satisfied with the distortion version and i recognize its flaws and but at the same time i think that sometimes when people talk about identity politics on the left they use it as a kind of dog whistle um and in in conjunction with this cancel culture nonsense as a way to kind of be like y'all are taking up too much space talking about your issues and we just want to talk about the issues that only affect us, you know. Um, and that's the problem. That's the, it's just a problem. I don't know. But anyway, last thoughts, Richard. Um, I'll let you close it out. What are your any any final thoughts about the Combahee River Collective Statement that you wanted to leave us with? Uh, just thankful for them taking the time to write it down, you know, and document it. And uh, I'm it's inspiring. And in some ways I feel like even if I don't literally write something like this, just kind of organizing my, my, my own perception in a statement like this kind of thing would be helpful. I feel. And like, I can, I, as you mentioned, build on this, I feel like I could essentially borrow a lot from this to help kind of uh, construct that in a way that 
would give me kind of a, a comprehensive understanding of my own politic and like where it's coming from and, and where I want it to be. And so I, I find it inspirational in that way, especially. And so I guess that's my final bit. Well, thank you for that. Um, and thank you all for listening to us go through this and also have a lot of tangents. Oh, they're, well, they're not tangents. They were related to what we read. Um, <laughs> <that's what> it <laughs> it's just been a lot. Like, I feel like lately it's been, you know, it's, it's been difficult kind of navigating like the reality on the street and then the nonsense that we see with some people online on the left. It's like the, the, the complete disconnect from reality has been jarring, I think. And I felt like we needed to kind of address it by using historical documents that are dealing with the same issues, you know? Um, so yeah, I really appreciate you reading this with me and, and you know, being on the, on the tape, going through it. <laughs> oh, thank you. And thank everybody that, that listened to us and is working through these things and that's going to read this and, and like, just help use this, either the recording or the text itself to grow and help kind of grow the left in the way that Wendy was talking about. Just thanks. And yes, thank you. And also just a reminder to everyone, if you haven't had a chance to look at it or find it, um, you can find the link to the full text. It's only about, you know, like I said, like 11, it's about 11 to 12 pages or so. Um, you can find it on our Patreon page and that's patreon.com slash left POC. Everything over there is always free for the public. Um, and you can also find it linked on our Twitter page, our Facebook page, blah, 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 blah. And also in the show notes of this actual episode. Um, and if you happen to have any questions or comments you wanted to leave about the podcast or about the, the reading itself, feel free to do that on our Patreon or on social media, and we will do our best to respond to it, uh, your commentary or your question in the next uh, segment or like the next episode or the next reading revolution that we do, which is coming up next month. Uh, we'll release the document that we're going to read for next month soon. It is a zinger, folks, so be ready. It's a it's a spicy one. Um, mm. Spicy I'm because oppression <laughs> is always always uh, bland, and we got to spice it up a little bit so. <laughs> by challenging it. <laughs> I'm old and tired, as you can tell. Anyway, thank you all so much. Have a good one, everyone. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. You can find more about the podcast by visiting us on social media and searching for Left POC, or by checking out our Patreon, where our content is always free, but we welcome donations, by visiting patreon.com slash Thanks again, and have a good one.